Hey, we've got two brand new pieces of merch, and all our t-shirts are available for sale once again at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We made posters for our show in D.C. based on the ending of season six and the convention, and they turned out so awesome. Um, you might have seen the image on our Instagram or our Twitter, but it's a beautiful drawing full of little West Wing and West Wing Weekly Easter eggs. We sold most of them at the show, but we have a few left, and you should definitely get one before they run out. Besides the poster, the other new piece of merch that we made comes just in time for the 4th of July. You remember this. It's a key. Francis Scott key. It's the Francis Scott key key. We made the Francis Scott key 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 chain. It's a beautiful little antique brass key on a brass key ring, and it makes the perfect gift for the Marion Coatsworth hay in your life. I'm Marion Coatsworth hay. <laughs> We only have a few of these left from our show, but they're available now, and we're making more because they've been going really fast. Plus, once again, all our shirts and the What's Next baseball cap, they're all back too. So if you've been waiting to get something for yourself as a gift or for a friend, now's the time. It'll all be available to order until the end of June. So get that limited edition stuff while the podcast is still a thing. That's right. We're coming down to the last season. So go now. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. Hey, one disclaimer before we start the show, though we try and avoid spoilers on our podcast, there are some spoilers that come up in our discussion of this episode. So if you haven't seen season seven of The West Wing yet, and you don't know what happens, and you want to watch it spoiler-free, you might want to skip this episode of the podcast for now, and then come back to it. It'll be waiting for you when you're ready. Live from the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., it's the West Wing Weekly. You know, this show is set in D.C. We're going to dive even deeper soon enough. I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. Today we're talking about episode 622. It's called 2,162 Votes. It was written by John Wells, it was directed by Alex Graves, and it first aired on April 6th, 2005. A lot of April 6th, 2005 Very popular date. Yes. In this episode, we've got three Democratic candidates fighting for 2,162 votes. We've got three astronauts fighting for a few hours of oxygen. We've got two White House officials trying to find whoever leaked the information about a top-secret military space shuttle. We've got two special guests tonight. And we've got one episode left in season six. That's all coming up on Sports Night. Live from CSC. I I told Josh a while ago that whenever I'm writing the synopses, that's actually the thing that I have in my head is the way that they would tease the show at the beginning of every episode of Sports Night. And that's always what I'm trying to aim for. It's rare that I get the chance to actually split it up with Josh so we can actually do it. That was fun. This is very exciting for us. This is our biggest show ever, um, live show. And we're so thrilled to be joined by two very special guests. Please give a very warm welcome to Mary McCormick and Lawrence O'Donnell. Before we get started with this episode, uh, we want to do a quick pickup on a previous episode. That's because when we finished with Mary doing the live show in San Francisco, we walked out and you immediately had regret that you hadn't mentioned what it was like working with me initially. (laughs) I wanted wanted to give you the opportunity to address that. Thank you. I mean, we talked a little bit about 
how horrible it was. But I don't think I, I mean, there's one story that I think was worth telling that I didn't tell, and I'll tell now. Please do. Um, just by way of, you know, I mean, I think probably you all know that he loves to prank people, and it's, it's like an illness, though. It's not like, ooh, fun, like, we're pranking each other. It's like people end up crying and, <laughs> you know, like really hating him. And I mean, it's weird, and he can't help himself. Like, he has to do it. And then, and then people will go, Josh, too much, too much. And he's like... <laughs> it's like it's like it's coming through him somehow but the episode where we were in Camp David I think I was six months pregnant and we were shooting here and it was hot and we were racing because we were trying to wrap that set before the cicadas came out of the earth the 17 year cicadas like I've never in my life and there are I mean I don't know if you've well you've all seen them I guess first of all I hate bugs like I hate little bugs but these are this big white, wet, and have red eyes. I mean, what is worse? And the first day, we saw, you know, you'd, you'd see like one. And I was like, oh, I can deal with it. I'm all right. I'm okay. And then like maybe by the end of the next day, the whole, a whole tree would just be moving. So to get from my trailer to the set, I'd have like two umbrellas, and they would just be like, pop, 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 pop. You know, you'd feel them hitting you. And then I got to set, and I was working, and then I'd just, all of a sudden I'd feel this. Ah. Like a little twig. So horrible. Very, very effective. And pregnant. My memory really is that you pregnant. did cry. And I was, I looked at, I remember looking at you and being like, as, like I was, I was crying, because I thought for sure one had crawled in my ear, was going to eat my brain, with its red eyes. And I remember cr crying, and being like, oh, I'm pregnant. I should have factored that in. <laughs> I had forgotten. That's not what you said at the time. He was like, <laughs> "I just thought, sorry." Oh, this is, is it a too new late? Level. It's never too late to say you're sorry. <laughs> Sometimes too late to receive it. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's just a. Um, I just wanted to be clear about just the level of it. Mm -hmm. It's an illness. And then you, I, I thought you were going to mention possibly paper slapping. Oh, so oh, I brought I'm happy a whole. I brought a holy relic. I'll show I'm you. I'm happy to. You. So another thing that we always did on. Set. We may have chatted about this before. I'm I think sure. we did. So I, should I not? No, please do because oh. I, I brought an object. Oh, great. So we had this thing where, well, Josh probably started it, but then it infected everybody where you're holding I your, helped popularize this. I don't think I, I'd like to say I invented it. Hold, let me hold these. I'll, I'll be the, I'll okay, be the copy that. So he's looking at his lines and I like that. That's all. That's it's money annoying. in the bank. The first time That's you're like, funny. Oh, you got me. It's annoying. Whatever. And you pick it up and then like, you know, they forget and you do it again, he does it again, and again. And sometimes people are like, seriously, pal, it's enough now. Like, I gotta learn these lines, and, and he just, could, he can't stop. I have two funny things about that. One is, I think I got this from someone else who worked on a Nickelodeon show and said they used to do it all the time. Then a production assistant left that show and got a big job on a movie, and his first day, someone was walking down the hall carrying a stack of scripts, and he went, wham, in your face. And it was uh, one of the producers of the movie who fired him instantaneously yeah. <laughs> and it's like wow there's a very different sort of yeah i try it now uh, on others, i try it on other sets and people are like yeah. you know you don't realize that we, it was i now hold sides white knuckle which are, i white knuckle them instinctively like on any set i hold my sides like this like with a death grip anyway this won't read to the home audience so you're really getting top dollar value but one of our great production assistants on the West Wing, not the one who later got fired from a movie, was Holly Strickland, later became a dear friend and a babysitter to my kids. And her mother created for me 
a canvas holster for holding my script that is kind of bedazzled and says my name, then it says super actor, super paper slapper. <laughs> to model it. I've had it for 16 years. <laughs> Should we get to the episode? Let's do it. I read a quote from John Wells about this episode saying that the Democratic Convention on West Wing will be more reminiscent of Chicago, meaning 1968 in Chicago, but not in terms of its violence. Uh, there's going to be a convention, but not a slickly produced television show. The 1968 Chicago uh, convention, you know, had a lot of protests, a lot of arrests, and it ended up generating Hubert Humphrey, who um, got crushed by Nixon. Hubert Humphrey lost by less than 1% of the vote. <gasps> Just for the record. Well, I was going to point out that the last multi-ballot convention occurred in 52. Democrats ultimately nominating Stevenson, who was not even initially a candidate. I thought maybe that was the basis for some of this episode. Perhaps not. He, he gave the welcoming speech at the convention. Estes Kefauver. Is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. it? Yeah, Richard yes. Bingo Russell. Yeah. I'm kidding about the bingo, but Richard Russell and Avril Harriman were the other uh, candidates. Yeah. And it took three ballots, finally, to nominate Adelaide Stevenson, who was shellacked by Eisenhower, though probably it was less than 1% of the yeah. vote. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the news media has been yearning for that kind of convention uh, because it's just so much more fun, the multi-ballot thing. And, you know, after 68, they just became increasingly produced television shows where it was really, you know, like Super Bowl halftime shows where every single minute was mapped out. So the media has always wanted that. I guarantee you, you will hear people saying, are we going to have a so-called brokered convention, meaning a convention where you go in without a nominee. In you, 2020. This time, because you have 400 people running for the nomination. <laughs> and that's usually what creates this kind of thing. Well, there's an interesting dynamic in this episode, I noticed, where Leo is trying to kind of convince the network bigwig to stay with the convention, where I would have thought they'd be eating it up, like this kind of mayhem is fantastic. Well, that, that, that was, a certain amount of that was coming from me to John, because the truth inside networks at the time, once you got into the early 21st century, is they started to realize how boring this TV show was. And the audience was ahead of them on that, you know? And they were wondering about why are we spending all this money covering these conventions when we know what happens? So there was, in those days, already a kind of creeping executive think about maybe we should pull back the amount of our coverage, especially in prime time at CBS, ABC, NBC. Cable, of course, they were gonna stay with it, but it was really about the big ones. And so that was a dynamic that existed in the world. And then what we ended up playing in the episode was, yes, everyone expects conventions to be boring, but in this one, all hell breaks loose and everybody watches. Mm -hmm. The element of having an underdog seems to be like something that the West Wing just could never get away from. It, it was always trying to set up the, our characters to be an underdog, no matter what the situation was. So was that part of the idea here that by having Vinick sort of take the Republican nomination so easily that regardless of whoever was going to come out of the uh, Democratic convention, although we kind of all sort of sensed who it might be, they would ultimately be placed in an underdog position before we even start season seven. Well, this was an incredibly challenging dynamic for the West Wing because, well, first of all, drama likes underdogs. 
So that's the first appeal of the underdog. Uh, you're just going to get a better drama out of it. If, when you watch this episode, which I have to say I think is great, I haven't watched it since it was on TV, and I watched it yesterday, and I just think it's fabulous. I want to begin with worship of Alex Graves as a director of this episode. I mean, he took what was on paper and made it magic, and John Wells delivered a, a brilliant script, I, I think. And so this underdog thing was a big difficulty for us. In, in, in most dramas, the challenge that you have with your underdog is your underdog, of course, is the big movie star in the piece. The underdog in casting is always, you know, the star. And so you somehow have to weaken that person's position so that it seems like there's a realistic challenge in front of them. And so I think the character with the biggest challenge in the West Wing as we got into those last two years was Alan Alda because everybody knew this West Wing is not gonna elect a Republican president. So the challenge there began with casting. You know, John already cast Jimmy Smits as, and, and we knew we are writing the next nominee, and we believed at the time we were writing the next president, and there would be no doubt about that. But then there, a doubt did come into it in the final season. And so the challenge for Alan Alda was, how does, how does this character even seem credible in the West Wing as a possible winner? And all of the credit goes to Alan Alda not least because Alan is a giant star. So you had two giant TV stars, Jimmy Smits, Alan Alda. And anybody looking at TV could imagine one of them, in effect, taking over that show. So it was very much a, a casting issue. And then, then it had to go into the writing, which was challenging. I had to do pretty much all of the Alan Alda writing. I introduced him and into the series and all that. And I had, I think we had Alan booked for four out of the 22 that year, and Jimmy was booked for about 14 of them. <laughs> and I somehow had to make this guy with four episodes a threat to this guy. And I think that was pulled off reasonably successfully. And then what John was able to do going into this convention and creating a you don't know what's gonna happen next drama. And let me just say, as I was watching it yesterday, I didn't know what was gonna happen next. I did not oh, know. Awesome. I did not remember. <laughs> oh, they. Oh, and then he came in, and then he decided not to do VP, and he went for the top of the ticket. So you've reached that age. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> no. It's the. It's the. John is a master of suspense. It is pretty exciting. When you said a character with the biggest challenge, I I was hoping you were going to say Will, at this point. <laughs> Because well, here the, at the, the the credibility challenge for Will was constant. It that's just the, it the never act, went the, away. That's just the actor with the biggest challenge. <laughs> I was going to say character with the biggest challenge because he's reduced in this end of season six to lines like, "A coin has two sides." Let's talk about the coin having two sides for a second. Let's. So. At the beginning of the episode, Leo's got a meeting in the convention and they're trying to hash out the specifics with representatives from the three major campaigns. You've got Josh for the Santos campaign, Will for Russell, and other guy for Hoynes. And then, and Leo asks about the speaking order before the first ballot and chaos ensues. And Leo says this. Enough, we'll flip a coin. Well, there are three of us, a coin only has two. Josh, draws, pick a number out of a hat, I don't care. Uh, but so after Will's reasonable objection, they... It's, it is a valid point. It is. Uh, this is what Leah decides. Okay, the speaking order. Rock, paper, scissors on three. One, two, three. What? 
Okay. So Leo's been, Leo is the guy who they bring in to try and rein in the uh, organizational challenge that is the DNC. But after this, I don't trust Leo with organizing yeah. anything. Right. By you the can't way, have a three-way rock, paper, scissors, right? And like, he earlier no... said, draw straws, pick a number out right. of a hat. Straws Two work. very reasonable yes. ways. Exactly. Straws work. To resolve this, yeah. uh, there is no way for one round of rock, paper, scissors to determine right. anything in a three-way process. It has to be like a round robin yes. sort of situation. Whatever it, I mean, yeah, you'd have to whittle right. it down. They should have done one of those chirons two and a half hours later. <laughs> <laughs> There was exactly one person in the West Wing writer's room who had no idea what rock, paper, scissors was. No. <laughs> what? Oh, really? no I'd never heard of it. Really? You heard of it. You didn't know what it was. You heard used, of it. We uh, used guns and knives in my neighborhood. I... It, was, it was different. It was oh. different. In the scene, Leo also says that everyone has to have their speeches approved by Annabeth. I spoke to Jennifer Palmieri, who is the communications director for Hillary Clinton's campaign, and she told me that that situation and that position, the uh, leading podium operations, is absolutely a real job and a huge one. She said that uh, that person has to manage which speaker comes on and what they're saying and how long they're going to speak for, and then their remarks have to get signed off on. And then she was telling me a little bit about the 2016 convention and what people get to do. It's not as if you don't have the ability to write your own speech, but you definitely are going to have some help editing it. For example, Kieser Khan, he wrote his own speech, but he worked on it with the team that was there in Philadelphia. And he said, I have a constitution with me. What do you think if I pull it out? And they're like, great. Yeah, you should do that. And it was like one of the most memorable moments. That was this moment in the convention. Donald Trump, you're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? I will gladly lend you my copy. It was good TV, but it had to go through and, you know, had to get signed off on. It was good America, too. But... Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, a left-leaning audience? <laughs> we love you all. Back in the White House, uh, it's a bit of a ghost town. Or as Charlie puts it, he says, it's weird out there. It's like we had a fire drill and everybody's still out on the lawn. And uh, that makes sense. But then this part didn't make as much sense to me. Toby says, Convention, fire drill without the fire. But I thought, by definition, don't all fire drills lack a fire? <laughs> no, sometimes they're real. But then it's not a drill. Then it's not a drill. <laughs> you know what? He's right. <laughs> There's a feeling in this episode about the delegates that's not very kind. Um, not very respectful of their job. Yeah, I mean, the episode is named after their votes, but there's a sense that there's not a lot of respect there. We get a version of the Teladonna here. We get a Telerana. Uh, where Rana asks Josh about the delegates, and this is what he says. 
They're only here to grunt and cheer and stomp their feet at every cheap applause line. They're completely out of step with the voters we need in the fall. Now they're going to pick our nominee. Four years ago, two-thirds of the delegates wanted to cut defense spending. Even Democratic voters don't want us to touch it. Delegates were split on the death penalty. Democrats favored two to one. You don't think they're qualified to do the job? The job, as previously constituted, was to clap and wave noisemakers for five hours straight. So the delegate's sole purpose is to pick our party's nominee. Yeah, if you're leaving out the uh, part about the little foam hats and the shape of the Hoover Dam, Finally, yes. selected them with no regard for their ability to perform that job? Yeah, did I mention that we have a... I just want to focus on that last line. We selected them with no regard to their ability to perform that job. Is that... Is That's that... how I got the job. <laughs> Lawrence, can you shed any light on this? Is this? That's, uh, that's John Wells. And he's right in that period of time that it was very common for the delegates in the convention, for Democrats especially, to not reflect Democratic voters. That the primary system was invented to try to solve that problem. And it has taken many, many decades to get closer and closer and closer to representing what Democratic voters are actually thinking. But it's always been a struggle, that fit, you know, of a world that includes superdelegates and people who are automatically seated as delegates in a convention and people who get there through the voting system. And, and the people who end up as delegates through the voting system can be absolute first-time political tourists who've never been involved in any way in any of it. Some of them can be old line political hacks, depending on which candidacy, which campaign they're, uh, they're there for. And so I think it's a less interesting or accurate statement now than it was then, but it was a pretty good representation of the way it could feel. What's changed? Why is it different now? Because as we move through time, the truth of it is that the delegates in the convention more and more and more resemble the Democratic electorate. Is this uh, primary situation, the primary system and the delegate system and everything, dumb? It's, no, it's, it's probably the best we have. Of, of the dumb choices, it's probably the best we have. Fair enough. So Josh goes back to Hoynes. Um, Hoynes? In the beginning of this episode. <laughs> uh, I'm a little OCD, I have to do that. <laughs> as we're starting to triangulate and... Um, and he tries once more to see if he can talk some sense into him and get him to back Santos. And when he sees him, Hoynes has some strong words for Russell. Russell's um, out there, you know, trying to make some moves about the vice president. This is what Hoynes says. The guy's got a hell of a nerve floating VPs before he has the nomination. Hubris. Ask Odysseus how that worked out. So, as you know, we always like to try and go a little deeper on this show. Um, so I did ask Odysseus how that worked out. And uh, this is what he said. So I blinded the Cyclops and I was escaping with my men and I probably should have just left it at that. But, you know, I, I got hubris, you know, so I yelled <laughs> at him and said that it was Odysseus who did it, you know, and I had a good laugh. But the Cyclops dad is Poseidon. So he cursed me. I didn't get home for like 10 years and all my men died. So, yeah, Hoynes is right. Hubris, it's not it's not great. What's next? That is a get. <laughs> His publicist was tough to work with. I'll bet. Um, <laughs> Odysseus tempted the uh, wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing. Um, but then Josh has a really rough conversation with 
a guy who used to be his boss, and he, he really doesn't put any kind of, he doesn't sugarcoat it at all, as, as Hoyne says, he says this. Your political life is over. It was over the day you resigned the vice presidency. I don't care what they're saying to Larry King. It's a good scene. Yeah. It's brutal, though. Uh, this whole episode is really, I think, there are... Well, it's not as brutal as it sounds. I mean, the guy had been caught in this gigantic yeah, scandal and resigned the vice presidency. It's not a big news flash that you have a hopeless political future in front of you by episode 22 of season <laughs> six. It's, That's true. It's why when you see it played... It, you know, if you just read it on a page not knowing any previous context, you go, whoa, that's really, that's harsh. But if you, if you understand all the story that ramped up to that, you notice Hoynes it doesn't object to that. He doesn't, it's outrageous. He's not, <laughs> he he kind of, he's halfway there. He kind of gets it. He seems to be the only person for whom this is news, but, but he needs to hear the news. No, I think what, the thing I love about it is that the last person to really know that a politician's career is absolutely hopelessly over is the politician. And so this was our guy in this story who was showing you how much they are trying to hang on by their fingernails no matter what happens just you know because Hoynes has no right being in this story he's got no right being near this campaign running for this nomination but the voters and in this case the convention delegates are going to have to convince him of that because a politician can never convince himself of that hmm. i liked the symmetry of this conversation with you know a moment that we get really before our, our story starts, when Hoynes and, and Josh go running, and he says, You know something, Josh? Sometimes I wonder if I listened to you two years ago, would I be president right now? You ever wonder that? No, sir, I know it for sure. Josh is kind of bookending these two moments where if he'd listened to Josh, he could have been the president. And now, if only he listens to Josh, he could realize that things are over for him. He just has this kind of a moment on either side of, of the guy's career. I thought that was nicely, yeah. nicely yeah. done. Just to finish with, uh, with Hoynes, um, since he Hoynes. is so close to being finished. <laughs> Jumping ahead, we'll, we'll come back, but later uh, after the second ballot, Hoynes is down to 102 votes. He starts here with, I think, 900 or so, and then he gets down to 102 votes. Bakers come into the race, and... Leo comes in and asks them for some sense of decorum. They have, a, have another meeting, and then everybody gets up, and they leave, and Hoynes is just sitting there by himself, and it's really sad. Um, as though, like, the 100, it starts to finally sink in. And do you know the meme of Ben Affleck, uh, where he and Henry Cavill... The, oh, he the, just stares off in the... <laughs> he and Henry Cavill are, uh, are doing press for Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. Sure. And I think that the person who's doing the press junk, the interviewer asks them, you know, how they're feeling about the reviews being, you know, pretty bad. And Which is an awkward question. Yeah. And Henry Cavill starts to answer, you know, earnestly, and Ben Affleck, in the meme, uh, just stares off into space, and they start playing. Well, it goes like this. I just wondered uh, whether that, how, how that makes you guys feel and whether it will even affect the film as such. Well, uh, the, the interesting thing is that... We, we Hello, darkness, my old friend. And that was all I could think of when I watched uh, watched Hoynes taking in the news. <laughs> but the, the nice thing about that moment is when Tim is silent, when Hoynes is silent and taking that in, he's looking straight into Josh's eyes. And that, I think, is the moment 
where Hoynes realizes, I'm going to have to make a deal with Josh. And this episode takes that opportunity away from him uh, because Bartlett comes in and takes the opportunity away from him. So, so Hoynes was actually on the verge of being the kingmaker here and finally in his final act doing a version of the right thing by handing the crown to the right person and he doesn't even get to do that. I, I want to play a, a clip that happens right at this moment where Josh is making his pitch for take the, take the mantle of elder statesman, yes. party uniter, yes. but yes. also maybe if you, if you listen closely, as Lawrence suggests, you'll see why it particularly landed for me. You've had a long and distinguished career, sir. Wouldn't you like to see your name just one more time in the history books without the word scandal after it? That, that really hit home for me. <laughs> I would like my obituary to be something other than scandal. Not that I'm not proud of it, I just need another job. <laughs> and while we're at it, there was one other clip from this episode that also really landed for me. How much longer? Maybe 30 minutes. And what? Can they start the second ballot and my hairline recedes about three inches? Ha <laughs> That happened. <laughs> That's one of my personal hits. <laughs> By the way, can I just say how much I loved your interaction with Donna throughout this part of the campaign and this episode in particular? Thank you. It's really great. I appreciate that. And in a series, it's so fascinating to see that, that shift because we'd only seen Donna working with Josh for all those years and then to, to see her in effect on her own. It was just fascinating to watch how beautifully she transitioned into that and, and she grew into another character. And I love the way you worked with her. It was just I great. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, we've, we've tried to make the argument that Will has given her a little more room oh, you to block. absolutely did. And, and that's, I really love that. Will saw and used more of her potential than anyone else. I think in the, yeah, in the tally of winners and losers, if, if Hoyne, we've got Hoynes at the bottom as ultimate loser because he's even lost a chance to make this deal where he's the kingmaker, I do think that Donna is maybe the ultimate winner uh, mm-hmm. of, of this season. I think that uh, yeah. the arc oh, yeah. has been fantastic. Janelle Maloney, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Later. She's hanging with Alan Alda and, <laughs> and Hubert Humphrey <laughs> in the green room. Well, he's green because he's dead. You're not wrong. Speaking of Will, it's really... Do we have to? (laughs) It's always so nice when Toby gives um, anyone a compliment, as paltry as uh, the compliments might be, like this one. Did you hear Russell's speech? Yeah. It's pretty good. Russell has a few teeth left in his head. That also came true. You do still have teeth in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Invisalign. Let's get to Mary's uh, subplot, finally. uh, Speaking of chemistry, I, I... I really kind of like, I like the kind of non-chemistry that exists between Kate and Toby. Seriously, like, Kate had a gr- has a great rapport with CJ, and it seems like those two characters sort of instantly fell in with each other and, and kind of have figured it out. And in some ways, I could see the show being tempted to try and make Kate Harper suddenly just, like, immediately part of the gang, you know, and ju- just, like, really bring her in. But... Two things in this episode. One, having her take on this role of like an inquisitor. And then also this kind of slightly cold dynamic between Kate and Toby. You get the sense that Kate's still reminded every day that she's, she's not part of the, the OG crew. Yeah, that's how it felt. <laughs> no, it's not how it felt. It's not how it felt. 
No, Richard and I were really, really close, and, and I enjoyed working with him so much. But yeah, that was, I thought he, I mean, it was well-gauged, that. Because she is an outsider, and she is put in charge of this investigation, and someone's looking at 10 years, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, well-paced by the writers. But Kate was always the adult in the room. I mean, you know, she, remember, she came in to occupy a jurisdiction in, in the show that didn't exist at that level of prominence in the cast, which is national security. She came in with this national security brief. And to all those people who are speechwriters and press secretaries and the assistants that we saw at play there, except for the White House Chief of Staff, and no matter where their rank is technically, they all feel at some lower level of play than Kate all the time, right. 100% of the time. She knows stuff that they don't know and will never know. And she knows that, and they know that. Also, she's been married so many more times. <laughs> so many husbands. How else. many? How many? It's a lot, right? Innumerable. I forget how many. <laughs> twice. You've been twice married and twice divorced. Thank Minimum you. twice. Oh I um, should know that. Actually, Josh... <laughs> always brings up every time there's a scene between Kate and really anyone, you keep on suspecting that there's something between, you're like, what's the subtext here? They seem to have, you know, something going on between jealous. the two. Jealous. jealous. Uh, which is another reason why I thought this non-chemistry between Kate and Toby was <laughs> really nice. She turned it off for one scene. Let me ask a question uh, here to everyone before we wade a little further. Some people, like my parents uh -huh. who are here tonight, are, so my parents I know are watching the TV show in synchronicity with the... In synchronicity? That's beautiful. You're back. It's going to be poetry. Go for it. Uh, in synchronicity with... They're watching the television show. In synchronicity in with... In sync with the, with the podcast. Beautiful. Um, and so they have not seen past the end of season six yet. Are there other people here who have not yet seen any of season seven? I see one hand. Right there. Yeah, make some noise. One hand, break with two hands. Convention. And indulgent spoilers. Yes, we don't like to spoil anything before we've gotten to that episode, but there are some things about the making of this episode that were going on, and we're wondering if we can talk about that. Is it okay if we... If you don't know who the mole is yet, the leak? So... If you don't know, that is... <laughs> yep, that's right. Two syllables. When I watched this episode, the question of who the leak was had been spoiled uh, so thoroughly that I didn't have any kind of suspense around that, but for the viewers, we don't know who it is yet, and they're playing this for suspense but I couldn't actually absorb it because I already knew. So instead, I was reading the episode, even the first time I saw it, with a level of what are the clues that they're giving me for the answer that I know is going to eventually come. And you, while making it, you already knew. Mary, you already knew who, was gonna, who the leak was. I knew, yeah. Even though your character did, did not yet. Are we saying who? Did Richard know? I, <laughs> okay. So Richard did know. He knew who the leak was. And how did he feel about it? He was not happy about it. At all, but not just not happy. He was uh, livid. And it was uh, hard because... Let's clap for lividity. <laughs> it was hard. I mean, it was awkward. It was awkward for me because I was the new kid. I mean, I still, even though I'd been there for a little while, I was relatively new. And, um, you know, and I love Richard, and, I, and it was hard to see him that unhappy and angry. In between scenes, as I mean, luckily, yes. Toby is also unhappy and angry in the, in, well, yeah, everything. Yeah, no, it, it but, aligned. But yes, between scenes, and I mean, he really was wanting to vent. And there was a lot of, if Aaron were here, this would never happen. I was like, I don't know. Lawrence, I'm imagining he probably voiced his opinion to the powers that be. Well, 
so this is complicated, uh, to put it mildly. <laughs> it began simply with the germ of an idea, as, as so many things do in the writer's room. What about a special prosecutor? And so that's where it begins, because, you know, these White Houses recently had been getting special prosecutors. We all know that goes nowhere. Eventually. 37 <laughs> indictments. I won't hear a bad right. word about Mueller. Right. Um, so... 37. So that was where it started. How do we get a special prosecutor? What could it be? What could it... And I, I have to say, my mind wandered uh, when... People were zeroing in on this space shuttle stuff and all of this stuff because some people had to go look up technical junk and all that. And I was just much more concerned with the dynamics of it and, and ultimately the most difficult choice about it, which is not, not so much what they will be investigating, as it turns out it's a military thing, but who. Who will they be investigating? And then, so much more importantly for us, who should they be investigating? And then we were stuck as dramatists with this question of, is the person they're investigating guilty? And so the softest TV version of this is, of course, no. None of our wonderful TV series heroes are guilty. And we, with reasonable consistency, always chose the opposite thing. Beginning in season one with the death penalty episode, and we gave ourselves, and Aaron took, the much more difficult writing challenge of doing the opposite thing and having a good and decent person do that opposite thing. This, to me, is similar, very, very similar. It's that challenge of, we're going to go in here with a special prosecutor, and what is he going to find? And the most powerful thing dramatically that he can find is guilt, and guilt in one of the gods of the West Wing, you know, one of the people who's been here from the pilot and who, you know, we all love and America loves. Then it literally, <laughs> in the writer's room, it, I mean, every name was mentioned. You know, it wasn't like, oh, Richard for sure. You know, let's do Richard. It, I would have done it. Yeah, it wasn't. It, we went through uh, all sorts of deliberations about who that would be. And Richard's completely right. So Richard had the feeling that his character would not do that. And I, I think that's 100% valid. It could be, yeah. It, it could be a failure of us as writers that we didn't come up with something else for some other character that we could get unanimity where everybody agreed, yes, pushed into this corner, this person would do this. But this is what we got. And I think it's as valid to say that Toby would do this, as it is valid to say Toby would not do this. And they, they were of absolutely equal validity. I personally respect actors' views of their characters more than anyone else, including, and this is heresy in the Writers Guild of America, including the creator of the character. We thought we were going pretty deep, but actors always go deeper, and by the time you're into six years, of Richard, the end of the sixth year of Richard living with being this character, his feeling about what this character would and wouldn't do is very, very, very well earned. That being said, <laughs> he did it. I think that there are a lot of breadcrumbs that the writers did leave to get to this point. And I think the connection again, like going way back to the beginning of the, the West Wing, knowing that Toby has a brother 
who was up in space. The, By the way, no one had any idea that would be used in right. any interesting way down the road ever. Yeah. Never. To connect that to then his, and his brother committed suicide. And then just the extremely long game of Toby's relationship with the president and everything with uh, Ricky Rafferty. Like he's getting torn apart. He lost Josh. He's angrier than ever. And so maybe there's a certain point at which you just say, yes, I can't go with this leap that the character would do this. But I think that it was pretty well set up. And for me, the line in the episode that both spoils it, that it's like, oh, well, obviously now we must know who this is, and also justifies it, is one from the president where he says, I want to know who it is in this administration that thinks their opinion of how I should handle this situation matters more than mine. There's only one answer. And, and it feels like a believable take on the character, too. Mm -hmm. I think so. We'll certainly talk to Richard about this I as can't well. wait. I want to hear that. Should we turn to less front matters, get back to the... Well, can, I, can I just ask, Mary, in this episode, when you're playing it in this episode, where really none of the cards are being turned over about Toby, was Richard at that time in yes. this episode having issues? Yes. Because, because I got to say, you could, you could shoot this episode this way, and if necessary, during the summer, we could come up with another guilty person if we had to. Uh, right. like it, we weren't, we weren't that far down the road that we were absolutely stuck. But I, I mean, and I think I'm remembering it correctly. I, he was clear on it at this point. Yeah. And the last line of the episode where I say, The FBI thinks it came from inside the West Wing. They have a theory, one you're not going to like. He's not happy about it in so real life. I mean, that was Richard like... Richard are not going to be happy Richard about it. Richard was not happy about it. And this, this, to me, makes his performance all the more wonderful because it's just a flawless piece of work in this episode. And when you know that he's complaining to Mary about it between shots, it's much more interesting to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I remember well, him. I, I mean, I remember oh, yeah. being inconsolable. Uh, uh, he was about furious. Possibly not wanting to even finish out on the show. Yeah. I mean, it was... He felt it really... struck deep to him. Betrayed. And it's funny, that last scene where Kate comes in and says, you're not going to be happy about it. I thought that it was, that was an attempt, much like the end of the episode right before, to misdirect us into thinking that it was CJ. Really? Right. Because yeah. the, at the end of wow. the very last episode, they're talking about the leak, and we get a shot of, of CJ at her desk by herself looking. That's what we were hoping for. Yeah. And so I Thank thought, you. And I thought that... Uh -huh. For falling for that. I guess I... I didn't have that experience because I had him in my head the whole right, time, so I exactly. can't watch it without that. Exactly, yeah. That's why I'm so curious what it would be like for someone who's watching this for the, yeah. without, without knowing. all this knowledge. Yeah, yeah. if they, they Raise your hand if we just ruined the show for you. Um, sorry. Thank you for coming. So would sorry. You, would you like an olive? <laughs> Mary, what's the thing you had to do in the West Wing that you thought was most wrong for your character? Have a romance with Will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say it before she does. That was the greatest setup of all time, and I'm not gonna, not gonna let her whack that one out of the park. <laughs> oh, I bought that. I bought that. Right, thank you. I don't, I don't know. I have to think about that. that. I have to think about that. But no, I bought our relationship. I remember Alex. I do remember Alex coming into the hair and makeup trailer. Alex Graves coming into the hair and makeup trailer and going like, "We're gonna hook you up with somebody," <laughs> and like, sort of laughing. That and then it like was Alex. you. Yeah, he was really happy. He thought I was going to be like, no. Alex, I don't know funny. if I told this before, but Alex is one of the all-time great prank, like inappropriate retaliators. 
I did a couple small things to him. I can't even remember. I did something on sports night where I like rearranged the furniture in his dressing room or something. And then I'm walking downstairs to the set and all of a sudden somebody is like emptying a fire extinguisher on me. <laughs> too far, too far. I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, too far. Dude, there's like mm. pranks. You can put your furniture back. I have to go change now. I love it. I'm I at love work. It. So and then funny. another time I took his iPod and I reset the settings to Mandarin Chinese. Which is very Super annoying. annoying. Yeah, because yeah. you have to know Mandarin to set it back to English. And he just punched me in the groin. Good. I was like, I dude, there's a difference. There's like, one thing is a prank. The other is assault. You, you assaulted me. What is the virtue of a proportional response? <laughs> there is one audience in the world that would get that. <laughs> Hooray, wow. dorks! Wow. <laughs> it's like Game of Thrones, the house of dork. <laughs> On that note, let's take a quick break. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to make a website for whatever it is you want to showcase online. It could be your art, your music, your podcast, your business, anything. That's why we made thewestwingweekly.com a Squarespace site. I recommend it to all of my friends, everybody I know who's starting something up. You can get beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers and analytics that help you grow in real time. That's right. So if you've ever pondered having a website for your special thing, whatever it may be, check out Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Do it. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Grove Collaborative. What is Grove Collaborative, you ask? Well, Grove Collaborative is an online marketplace that delivers all-natural home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your door. I've tried it. It's pretty wonderful. I've tried it too. And I agree. It was wonderful. I've gotten a bunch of the cleaners that I would normally go out to the store to get delivered to my door instead. Me too. I'm using face lotion I ordered through them. I'm using a shower cleaner that you don't have to rinse. You just spray it around when you're done with the shower. I love it. And they stock the brands that you might ordinarily buy anyway, like 7th Generation or Mrs. Myers or Method. If you're at all conscious about trying to buy products that are good for the earth, then they're carrying the kind of stuff that you probably already buy at the store. Here's the beauty part. With Grove, it comes right to you. You don't have to shop at multiple stores or search online or scour the internet to get all the natural goods that you want for you and your family. And right now, for a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co slash westwing, you'll get a free five-piece spring cleaning set from Mrs. Meyer and Grove, a $30 value. Plus, shipping is fast and free on your first order. So go to grove.co slash West Wing to get this exclusive spring cleaning offer. That's grove.co slash West Wing. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by SimpliSafe. According to studies, just over 10% of break-ins are planned beforehand. The rest are spur of the moment, crimes of opportunity. In other words, random. You know what's crazy? Only one in five homes have home security. That doesn't make sense. Maybe that's because most companies don't make it very easy. It can be expensive or it can take too much time to set up. It's a hassle. Oh, but we know one company that makes it super easy. Yeah, we do. Simply Safe. 
Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24-7 monitoring for just a fraction of the cost of competitors. That's right. And it's designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling. It's easy to order. There's no contract, no hidden fees or fine print. And that's why it's won a ton of awards from CNET to the New York Times wire cutter. To check it out, visit simplysafe.com slash West Wing. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. That's right. So go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash West Wing. That way they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash West Wing. And now back to the show. I was thinking about Game of Thrones when I was watching this because it does feel a little bit like mismatched consequences. In Game of Thrones, there's all these sort of political battles, who's going to sit on the Iron Throne, infighting. Meanwhile, there's zombie dead people coming to wipe out all of humanity. And in this episode, we're trying to figure out who's going to, you know, there's like 95% of it is trying to figure out who's going to be the person who's going to run against uh, Alan Alda. And meanwhile, there's an actual life and death situation happening in space, um, which is the B plot. You know, I, yeah. that storyline really landed for me watching it in the last couple of days. There's a Bartlett clip we didn't pull where he says, Damn it, CJ, I've got three men up there trying to take very, very shallow breaths. And I've been I very aware that line. of a reading of what's been going on on the top of on Everest. Uh, and I think at least 11 people have died because of the incredible, or in part because of the incredible traffic trying to get to the summit of Everest. And with that having happened in the last week or so, that really kind of informed my watching of this subplot. And yeah. it is a very intense and uh, palpable storyline that you're right is in a secondary position, but is this life and death struggle that's happening. So with that, let's get back to the convention because Al Bundy <laughs> shows back up. to a guy juggling on stilts. <laughs> oh, we get Governor Baker. He turns down the vice presidential spot that he had sort of tacitly agreed to for Russell. And he's going to take a path that feels more similar to what maybe Hoynes had imagined, that there was going to be a, a, another way besides all these declared candidates. And he was gonna, he's going to try and get nominated from the floor. And they actually already have draft Baker signs ready to hand out, which means that in the moments between him saying, let's have that drink with Russell and him saying, oh, we need to talk, he must have immediately come back and said, I'm not going to say yes to this guy. Let's try and do this ourselves. That Nobody's going to win it, so I've got a shot. I like that Russell immediately knows, too. When he says, let's sleep on it and uh, connect again in the morning, Russell knows exactly what's happening. He's yeah. going to try to get the nomination on the floor. Mm-hmm. And then we get a shot of, we see the president, we see POTUS, and then Flotus comes out, and even they're surprised by how fast things are moving. Baker? Eric Baker? When did he get into this? About two hours ago. It's a free-for-all. I think Aaron Burr's got 20 votes. You know, on this show, we like to go deeper, and so um, I asked uh, Aaron Burr how he felt with only 20 votes because it felt like it might be a long road to get the nomination. And he said, um, You know, I was a little disappointed in Dr. Bartlett that she didn't stay up and watch the convention. <laughs> I, I thought she'd be more invested. She, her political life is also, she's also ready for retirement. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. By the way, a side note about POTUS and FLOTUS that ties into our esteemed guest, Mr. O'Donnell here. I was reading about 
how those terms got popularized. POTUS was first mentioned in the Phillips Code, which was compiled in 1879 by Walter Phillips, who was a wire service manager who worked for the AP and, and UPI. And I was reading about this in an article in the New York Times that said POTUS, so the term had been around since 1879, but it was popularized in a White House novel from 1977 called Full Disclosure, uh, which is the name of an episode that Lawrence wrote. One thing that was not fully disclosed in this article, though, is the person who wrote the article is also the person who wrote that book. <laughs> uh, it was just trying to move copies. Yeah. It was William Sapphire who, who wrote that book, and he had also written that article. But yeah, he didn't, he didn't mention that. By the way, that's my book. That's funny. Um, William Sapphire was a White House speechwriter for Richard Nixon, Nixon, so he knew what he was talking about. And was, that, was the title of that book at all an influence on naming Hoynes' book? I'm learning of the existence of the book <laughs> right now. <laughs> I did not know that. Well, there it is. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. That's all. <laughs> just felt like it needed to be said like that. I also really love the, the, just the poetry of the one shot of somebody throwing away a bunch of Hoyne signs. Um, As his, isn't that his campaign guy also lying prone on the table? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that, that guy's done. Th that's very real. Uh, if you've ever been on a convention floor at the end of the night, it, it's just littered with all of, the, all of the signs from that day. We have a clip from another great, apparently wild, chaotic convention. DNC 2004. Josh mentions a hell of a balloon drop. And in 2004, uh, DNC, I guess it's Kerry Edwards, uh, the balloon drop did not go well. And Don Misher, the director and producer of the event, can be heard, obviously unbeknownst to him. His, his feed was carrying to the television audience. And it's kind of fun to listen to. Yeah, CNN did not mean to be carrying the control room audio, but they were. And so this is what the audience heard at home. Go balloons, balloons. All balloons, what the hell, there's nothing falling. What the f are you guys doing up there? I have left specific directions for that to be played at my funeral. <laughs> I think it's going to be hilarious. <laughs> Where are the balloons? What the f <laughs> I thought you just wanted Van Halen played no. at your funeral. The audio, the you dialogue. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that was real. House dork. How about a little math? Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe a little West Wing math. Okay, I'll start with the first part of the equation. Will says this. I feel like I just re-recorded Rod Stewart's back catalog. Right? Then Josh later says this. You think none of the young Turks working on our campaign staff are doing it because they want jobs? And um, those two add up to this. Does anybody get that? Anybody get that joke? The woman for whom we, we ruined the show got it. Oh, okay, good. Uh, welcome back. Uh, that was Young Turks by Rod Stewart. There's Worth it. <laughs> Math, it always does well. I have another little weird equation for this. Before, we're going to, I think, get to uh, soon the subplot about Baker and the information. So here's what I wanted to do. As do first, I want, let's introduce the uh, subplot. Sure. Subplot. 
Audience. Audience. Subplot about Baker. In synchronicity with our podcast. I don't, I don't know what's happening anymore. Well, first I want to play a clip. Was that me? Was that him? Did a prince really kiss me? And kiss me and kiss me? And did I kiss him back? This, of course, is Joanna Gleason, who played Jordan Kendall. Jordan Kendall on the West Wing, who won a Tony for her role in Into the Woods playing... Baker's Wife. The Baker's Wife. Now we can talk about Baker's, Baker's wife. wife. Ah, you like that better than the Rod Stewart. Musicals. <laughs> Foiled again. What did you think about having a character facing depression? It's a great storyline. It yeah. asks a very interesting ethical question. No? It felt a little bit to me like you know, we've talked about this before, the opposite of Deus Ex Machina, where you, you need Mach to pull this thing out. DNA? <laughs> yes. Um, Gave but, it a shot. But it, may, but it also might be totally real. I mean, it's also explained that the reason why this stuff is coming up in the last minute is because Baker has not been vetted. That the primary process involves uh, stress testing all of the candidates and every element of their biography and their loved one's biographies, really. And he hasn't had to go through that. So it, it was also based on a real world possible Republican candidate for president who was polling enormously well who chose not to run because there was a concern about his wife's medical history in this territory. Colin Powell was polling at like 75%. You know, it just would have, he, if he'd gotten into the race, all the polls indicate he just would have walked all the way to the presidency and Clinton would not have had a chance in a re-election against him. My wife uh, has depression. She's had it for many, many years. And uh, we have told many, many people about it. It is not a family secret. It is uh, very easily controlled with proper medication, just as my blood pressure is sometimes under control with proper medication. <laughs> and uh, uh, you obviously don't want your whole family life out uh, in, in the press. But uh, when the story broke, we confirmed it immediately. And uh, I hope that people who read that story, who think they might be suffering from depression, make a beeline to the doctor because it is something that can be dealt with very easily. I thought one of the things it showed also was that Will and Josh are political operatives because they're just trying to find any way to use it. I mean, not, they're not trying to find any way. Their justification is it's going to come out uh, if he becomes the nominee and we're going to lose to Vinick anyway. So, but they're, they're go they want to use the information. There's a sharp contrast in the candidates, which we've seen throughout the whole season, but it really gets distilled really succinctly with this subplot about Governor Baker's wife. And it really comes through in the way that their representatives try to handle them and their response around it. There's these two lines that I think really, um, that are really poignant. One is Donna and Will talking about what they're gonna do. You know, Donna says, this is a brutal character assault on a man's wife for an eight hour story. And she's trying to convince him to convince Russell not to use it. Important Don't this. do this. Vice President will do it if you tell him to. Please. And then you compare that to Josh and Leo. He's not going to do it just because I say so, Leo. He's his own man. And here I thought I found the last one. Aww. 
one of the things I like in the final that Santos, there are a couple of things I like about the final Santos really locking up the nomination. One is that it's a great hero moment, but he's also being pretty wily. He has basically told Leo that he's going to throw his support behind someone else. As such, he locks up a position well, to if, speak if, again. If he's, you look at the dialogue, he was very careful not to say that to Leo, although Leo certainly got that impression. I, but I'm saying... I, it's I, implied I, and I, I give you a little hat tip to Santos for kind of actually being a little bit wilier than we normally give him credit for, So because he works himself into this position addressing the convention again and then <laughs> turns it around. And not only that, well, two things. First of all, I love the shot. Alex has this low camera oh, yes. looking up. You see the lights behind Jimmy. They're blown yeah. out. First of all, you know how you always, if you're smart, you hold your camera up when you're taking a selfie because it's flattering? Only Jimmy Smith's from below, shot up the nose, still looks like a god. <laughs> I was like, man, if that had been me, that wouldn't have worked. Um, but then the other thing is that in this next clip, in doing what he does, he also grills Leo and Josh for what they would have had him do. Now, it's been suggested to me this week that I should try to buy your support with jobs and the promise of access. It's been suggested to me that party unity is more important than your democratic rights as delegates. That's right, it's not. And you have a decision to make. I love it. He just goes after Josh. He doesn't mention them by name, but we know it's Josh and Leo who have made those suggestions to him. And here you have this big convention episode, and all you get of convention speech is this tiny little bite, and it's shot really tight, and it doesn't have any of that convention mm -hmm. feel, because what matters is everything that happened before it, and the words of that speech matter only because of what happened before it. Mm -hmm which only we know, you right. know, in the West Wing audience, not them out there in the convention audience. What's interesting about that speech is it reminds me of that phrase, a constituency of one, who he really has to convince. Because when he's giving that speech, people are moved by it, people are stirred by it, but it still feels like the people who are going to break for the delegates that they've already committed to might still go that way. Like the people who are start chanting Santos are not going to be the people who are Hoy's people. Who's he talking to? Yeah. And so the one person he's talking to really is the president. It really feels like a, almost like a dialogue as they cut between his speech and then the president watching the speech and ultimately the president deciding in response to what CJ says when she says, isn't it time that you pick the successor that you actually want, that he's done it with that one speech? Well, you know, one of the writing challenges of this season, once we got into the presidential campaign, was how do we keep Martin not just in the show, but keeping him important mm. in the show. What does he have to do with a presidential campaign? Right. And, and so, and we kept finding places, and Martin was just fantastic every time we handed him that ball. For what it's worth, far less important, but from my perspective, Will was out of a job. <laughs> and I remember sometime around this time in production, John Wells calling me to his office, and I remember a couple things. I was figured I was finding out whether or not I had a, a future on the show in the next season. The first thing I remember is that I was, they sat me in his office and I waited for him, but in his inner office. And I happened to notice that on his desk was a list of everybody's salaries. <laughs> that was oh in a drawer. Uh, <laughs> no, no. That was it's not actually, on his desk. Oh my God. Have you ever told this? I don't think I, no, I didn't because it, it feels dirty. It is dirty. I... 
far from opening a drawer, it's even unlike me to do what I did, which was like walk around the desk and just go like, yeah, if I had my phone, I would have taken a picture now, but I looked at everyone's. I confirmed that in fact, everybody was making far more money than I, which I suspected. And then I was trying to think like, why would he bring me in here and show me everyone's salaries? And uh, ultimately I decided that was just a mistake. Um, but I enjoyed the information. And then when he did come in, um, I remember him saying to me, look, I think I've uh, figured out a way to uh, keep you on the show and you'll do 11 episodes next season. You'll do about half the season. How does that sound? And I was like, it sounds 11 better than being fired. <laughs> he called everyone in. We, everyone had that meeting. Oh, is that true? I yeah, I, I had the same meeting. That. I didn't see the stuff. Uh, I, I, hope didn't you didn't see, I hope you didn't see what I was making. No, I, well. Um, no, but I think everyone was called in and said, listen, you know, the licensing thing and the budget and yeah, Warner that, Brothers well, and a whole right. bunch that of business part, part reasons. Part of the discussion was the show has gotten tremendously expensive. We are If not, we want to have another we're season, We're not what we used to be. We want there to be another season. Here's what I can do. Which I just thought was a very straight up and lovely thing to I do. Agree. I agree. Because in this business, I, most of the time, it just... You know, you find out when nobody calls you to tell you to show up. I thought it <laughs> you know, was three so months later nice. That you're, yeah. Agreed. And then the other thing he did, which completely unheard of was he said and for the last two episodes I'm going to give you a raise so that when you're looking for another job your quote will be higher than what so it is now. that's incredible and I have something similar to I had the same meeting and I was like well it's not 11's not great since I budgeted for this and I moved back to LA. And oh, that's but what I, I should know, have said. No, but I, I was happy to do it. I was thrilled to do it. I said I'll do whatever you, whatever you have and then he also did something. He said listen I can't it's hard for me to, you know, make up that money to you, but why don't I just write you in on a bunch of ERs? And I, I do like, remember that. I'll actually. take that. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> I should have held so that So nice. For I mean, ER. what a gentleman. I mean, no one does that, so it was really... He's one of the best. He's, I've, uh, he's one of the great bosses of yeah. all time, because that's all just completely unnecessary... 100%. Uh, ...compassionate treatment of employees. That's who this guy is. I mean, he, he was the, just the best executive producer you could work with in television. I just loved every minute of being around him. Let us rush towards the end of our episode the way the, this episode rushes towards the end a little bit. Because um, in the final moments, we have this great heroic scene of Santos getting the nomination, or it's sort of left, or, or you know, we don't actually see it happening, but he's got the, the nomination. The president comes in and uh, convinces the teachers' unions to back him, and, and this is going to seal his, his path to the in nomination. In part, just with his magnetic aura. <laughs> like, you see the guy walk in the door, and he's like, it's the president. <laughs> it's just the Martin Sheenness of it all is enough to just... That teacher tenure just goes out the window. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Whatever. Tenure schmenure. I'm yours. <laughs> and post-seduction, uh, the guy casts all the votes from New York to Santos, and we figured that things go according to the way that Josh said they would if they could get the teachers' unions. But then in the last just couple moments of the episode, last couple minutes literally of the, of the episode, we find out that Leo is going to be the vice presidential running mate. Which is a, a beautiful moment in the plot. I mean, it's a beautiful thing that that's going to be the, the ticket. But I, it's a moment that I wish I had, I don't know, 10 minutes to sink my teeth into um, instead of two minutes. Because on paper, there, it's a little bit strange. As we you know, have been reminded throughout this episode, again, there's no chemistry between Leo and, and Santos. They don't see eye to eye. Santos just called him out in his speech. True. Well, sort of, he subtweeted him. And, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... 
I mean, Leo still doesn't really know how to totally pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> I also thought that the Baker's wife, uh, Baker's wife, <laughs> Governor Baker's wife plot also had me thinking about Leo and his viability as a vice presidential candidate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there are things that... Uh, things are raised. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the stuff is things that were discussed when they were talking about possibly dropping Hoynes ages ago. So I would have loved to have been in the room when they had the discussion about how to decide that it was going to be Leo. But do you have any insight, at least in the writer's room, about how you decided that it was going to be Leo? Yeah, the writer's room is a slow-moving thing. There are very few aha moments in the writer's room. It's very rare. You crawl along, and, and you come to stuff usually only when you have to. So who's going to be the vice presidential nominee? And, and we're looking at this field of possibility within the Democrats that we've created, and, and we're not particularly inspired by our field of possibility of these guys. And then, you know, it would be wrong to simply pull somebody out of the air who we'd never seen before. Oh, let's get this amazing congresswoman who no one's ever heard of who suddenly appears. At that point, you know, unless you create someone several episodes back who can slide into this, and then it, you're going to have to pick out of the the deck of cards you have. And so the justifications for Leo were many, including age balance on the ticket, experience balance on the ticket. And he was, when I look at him now, in the post-Obama era, he was very much a Biden kind of vice president, you know, sure. to a Barack Obama, which was Barack Obama's choice. That was his deliberate choice. You know, no one maneuvered him into that. And what Barack Obama liked about Biden was that experience and all of that knowledge that Biden brought to it. I had personally had plenty of practical, political justification for why this is Leo. The series had powerful, dramatic justification for yeah. why this is Leo. Yeah. I mean, really powerful, dramatic justification. And so those two things converged, but it was mostly probably the dramatic justification that drew us to him. And really, if not Leo, just look around and tell me who else. Like, who, who else would have made sense on right. that ticket the next year? No, I think that there, absolutely there are great reasons for it. Um, I think President Bartlett's popularity at that moment, a way to, to tie in some kind of dynastic sense of continuity, continuity with the previous administration, all that stuff makes sense. I just would have loved to have just gotten a little bit of it. No, I know. I, I was surprised, actually, when I watched this episode and I saw how quickly we did that and moved on. But I know that if we had made a meal out of it, it would have been one of those, I mean, the only thing to do is show you the talking him into it scene. And I think by that time, we trusted the viewers. Come on, this is the season finale of season six. You know exactly what this scene is. Leo says, that's crazy. I shouldn't be, here's all, here's the 10 reasons I shouldn't do it. And then, you know, Josh says this, and Matt Santos says this, and ultimately in the end, Jed Bartlett says this, 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 and this, <laughs> so and true. Leo's the vice president. <laughs> and we didn't need to write that for you because you knew what that would be. That's true, and it would have killed the momentum of the episode. Well, there is a moment that I, I want to talk about. Maybe we can end on this. Um, the moment that I think does that exact thing, and I felt like I didn't need anything more. I did not need any words or anything. This beautiful shot that Alex Graves does that's in, in some ways a 
reflection of something he did in the season three season finale at the end before the president announces for the first time when he presents for the first time the ticket there's a shot of the president and leo and they're sort of facing each other but they aren't looking at each other i don't know if you remember this scene it's the the shot in the season three finale when when the president gives the order to assassinate sharif there's this really beautiful shot of the two of them together the president says take him the composition is kind of unusual for the show, but it's a tight shot of their two heads. And they don't speak to each other. The president is a little bit out of focus. The focus is on Leo, even though he's further back. And then we get the final scene. And that was, I, I just thought that was so beautifully done without any dialogue or anything, just the, the, with the composition and the staging and blocking of it. We sort yeah, of all got I mean, what that John meant. Wells wrote them into that spot physically. And then Alex took that spot. And, you know, made it a work of art. I mean, it's just, and I can't even talk about it because John Spencer's in that shot. Yeah. It's, it's hard to watch it. Yeah. I can watch it. I can't talk about it. Hmm. It's a different thing. Fair enough. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Thanks to our guests, Lawrence O'Donnell and Mary McCormick. Thank you to Zach McNeese, who's here tonight. In the house. the recording. Thank you to Margaret Miller and Nick Song. Thanks to Dave Nadelberg from the Mortified Podcast, which is another Radiotopia show that you could uh, check out. He was the voice of Odysseus. Um, and speaking of Radiotopia, the West Wing Weekly is a part of Radiotopia, which is a cavalcade of fantastic podcasts. You can find out more about the other Radiotopia podcasts at radiotopia.fm. Okay. Okay. What's next? Hey, here's another Radiotopia show you might enjoy. It's Ear Hustle, one of my favorite podcasts. Ear Hustle shares stories about daily life in San Quentin State Prison from the perspective of those living it. And season four just launched. Erlon Woods is the co-host of Ear Hustle, and he got some pretty exciting news last fall. As a result, this season is going to be a little different than the first three seasons. Reception is a place where everything filters through to the opening of the zoo. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor, and we are back with Season 4 of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. On Ear Hustle, we bring you stories about what life is like inside San Quentin State Prison in California. Prison is horrible. I, I, I hate it here. And I really put the twang in. And forever and ever, amen. And so all the white guys, yeah, brother, <laughs> sing, brother. I knew I had them, right? And this season, we're doing something really different. We're also telling stories about life outside prison, post-incarceration. So a lot of people ask me what it was and how long I got to wear it and why do I have it on and like, damn, it seems like you locked up, you still got to wear that and how long you got to wear that? Outside stories, inside stories, it all starts with episode one of season four of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is back. Yeah! Yeah!
So don't miss Ear Hustle's fourth season on EarHustleSQ.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Radiotopia.